0: Oh, good morning. Um, I was talking to uh, Phil a little bit earlier and he was saying how, um, you know, it's nerve wracking to teach in front of people you don't know, but then I realized I can say anything I want to and not be held accountable for it. So this should, should be a fun morning. Um, <laughs> Mike's got his hand on the mute button. He can, he can shut it down. Uh, So, I am the pastor of community groups over at Redeemer. My office is actually, my desk is right there, so I sit here quite often. Um, And this morning, what I want to talk to you guys about is gospel-centered community. So, that's the big idea. I want you to leave here this morning, one, just with a clear-cut understanding of the gospel, and then, two, how that changes how we live in community. So, and I'm going to use uh, community and relationships kind of interchangeably, But um, So we're going to talk about the gospel and how that changes our relationships with each other. And um, we place a high value on community. Um, As Christians, we place a high value on community because God does. And we see God, we see Him and how He exists in the Trinity. So God exists in a type of community. He's not a loner off by Himself doing it all on His own. He exists in community. We have the Father... Then we have God the Son, we have God the Holy Spirit. So God Himself exists in community. And then He creates man in His image. So we are created to need one another. It's kind of a bummer sometimes, but that's what we're created for. We are created to need one another. This is not a part of the fall. This is not, this is how God created us. To be human is to need other humans. So first and foremost, we need our vertical relationship with our creator. And then secondly, we need relationships with one another. We need each other. And so I want to I put a high premium on that. But I don't want you to leave here this morning um, putting your hope in relationships. Relationships will fail you. If I asked you to raise your hands, you know, who's, who's been hurt by someone in this room? It would be 100%. Or, or if it was, uh, you know, have you ever hurt someone in a relationship? Probably, again, 100%. We've all done things to each other, and hurt one another. And relationships are not the end goal. Community is not the end goal. It's a means to an end. And it is a, uh, it's a means to the end that it points to Christ. It's a means by which um, we glorify God. It's a means by which we pursue the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a means by which we take part in the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification. That's what relationships are for. That's what community is all about. It doesn't terminate on itself. It's not, if we just leave here and do relationships better then everything will be fine. But if we leave here understanding how the gospel changes our relationships and how that glorifies God, that's what we want. That's what I want this morning. So community is a means by which we experience God's glory Pursue the gospel of Jesus Christ and take part in the Holy Spirit's ongoing life-changing work of sanctification. More of him is the end goal. So I want to spend the first half talking about the gospel. And this might be a review for some of you, but honestly, these, these truths, they never get old. And the reason I want to talk about this is right, there's a gospel-centered movement going on right now, Right? I just saw on your little card, it says uh, Redemption Hill Church, Gospel-Centered Church. And so everything's Gospel-Centered now. I mean, it's Gospel-Centered carpet, Gospel-Centered coffee. Go- I mean, people, we just place Gospel-Centered in front of it and we roll with it. Um, that's great. I love, I love Gospel-Centered and it has changed the way I relate to Christ and relate to other people. But I don't want to just say it and then we attach our own meanings to it. I want to give it, um, give it meaning and give it um, give you the explanation of the gospel. So my favorite passage um, to teach this out of is Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 23. So I'm going to read that right now. So Colossians 1, 15 through 23. It says, he is, the invis- he is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the first thing we see here, In the gospel is God is the creator. So the first point of the gospel is creation. God creates everything. And this is God plural. We have have Jesus here with God and the Holy Spirit creating everything that is. And so it says he creates everything that's visible and invisible, thrones, powers. He creates it all. He creates the earth. He creates everything that's in the earth. He creates plants, animals. He creates us. And the Bible says he does this, he creates everything by him, so he creates it, and he creates it for him. So all of creation is created by him and for him. He creates it all, he owns it all. So when you and I can create something, which none of us have ever done, we've never brought something forth from nothing, then you and I can own that thing. But until then, which will be a while, God owns it all. So what that means is he, he owns us. Everything that we do, everything that we're about, it is to be for God. That's, that's his purpose. He created everything by him and for him. And so God, he creates everything. He creates um, humankind and places them in the garden. He calls it good. Everything's good. They're um, walking around in the garden, hanging out with God, doing the work that he has assigned them to do, glorifying him, having a great time. God creates everything, calls it good. And, but then the second point of the gospel is the fall. This is the not-so-fun part. And so you have God creates Adam and Eve, They're, um, or he creates Adam first. He's hanging out in the garden and there's, you see that vertical relationship between God and Adam, and everything's going good. But then God says, hey, it's not good for him to be alone. He needs, he needs some people like him. And so God creates Eve, the woman. And Adam's pretty impressed with that whole thing. They get along really well. And so they're hanging out, and God gives them a work to do in the garden. They're uh, doing things with God. And then he just says, I just have one rule, just one. Don't eat of this tree over here, this tree of knowledge and good and evil. Just just stay away from that tree. That's all you have to do. Just worship me, hang out with one another. Things will be good. Well, one day, this is great for a while, one day Eve is hanging out apparently near that tree. Don't really know what she's doing, but she's just chilling. And then Eve, or the serpent comes and starts chatting her up. Now, this this is your first clue to run. When a snake starts talking to you, you go. Like, you don't don't hang out in that. But for whatever reason, this doesn't seem strange to her. And so she she sits there, listens um, to the serpent, and he begins to tell her this lie. He says, God doesn't want you to eat of this tree over here because he doesn't want you to be as smart as him. God is holding something back from you, and if you just eat of this tree, you too can be like God. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what got Satan kicked out of heaven? When he said, I'm not satisfied with who I am. I want to be God. And so he tells Eve this same lie. You can be God. You can be as smart as God, as good as God. You just have to taste of this fruit. He's holding out on you. And she Believes that, and she tastes of the fruit, and uh, we don't exactly know where Adam is, but he comes over. He has a minor panic attack, but then he just he just kind of jumps right in and joins her in her sin. And they buy that lie that we buy every day, and that is, I can be God in place of God. Remember, created by Him and for Him, and Adam and Eve are saying, No longer, we are not for Him. We are for ourselves. This is, this is what we struggle with every day. Is this, is this day going to be for God, or is this day going to be... Can't hit that thing. Or is this day going to be for me? And so they fall, and God says, you can't live in the garden anymore. Relationship, that vertical relationship has now been severed, and I'm going to push you guys outside of the garden, and your work is going to be toil, and the woman is going to be cursed um, with bearing children in a very painful way and god pushes them outside of the garden and now sin enters into the world it says in romans that through one man sin enters into the world and so we are now all born with a sin nature but god is not satisfied to leave us there is he no he he sets about from day one his plan of redemption and he, tells, he even tells Eve, he says, you're going to bear a son. He's talking um, th- through her line, obviously. You're going to bear a son, and his, the serpent is going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush the serpent's head. And this is the first gospel. And God starts to lay out then his plan of redemption, starting in Genesis 3 all the way up until Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus comes on the scene he is born of the Virgin Mary. He um, he grows up apparently a fairly normal childhood. There's one kind of awkward story about him and the people in the temple, and um, but that's about all we know about his childhood. There's not much more than that. And so he grows up. He grows and uh, becomes a man, and then sets about on his uh, three-year ministry on earth. And that's pretty much what we know um, about Jesus on earth. And But he lives a perfect life. Never once does he sin. Which I haven't even pulled that off this morning. I mean, it was a struggle just getting here. But he lives a perfect life. And what it means to not sin ever is that he never once says, my will be done, not the Father's. He lives his whole life saying, God, your will be done. God, God. This is about you. He never says, I want my glory, not God's glory. And that's how he lives his whole life. And then he becomes the only acceptable sacrifice for our sin. So just as sin enters in through one man, so by the death of one man, many will be saved. And so the only man that didn't deserve to die is put to death, and brutally put to death. You guys have a cross hanging in here. And I think we could all agree that having um, those giant nails driven through any part of us would be awful, excruciating pain. And to die by crucifixion is to die by suffocation. And so Jesus is crucified, and in order not to die from suffocation, you have to hold yourself up by your body weight. But eventually you run out of strength and your lungs are crushed, and you can't breathe anymore. And this is how the only man who didn't deserve to die is put to death. It seems terrible. It seems like that's the end of the story. Like, this guy who just did a bunch of good things for everybody, lived this perfect life, and now he's just dead, and that's the end of it? God doesn't leave him there. God raises his son up from the dead. So on the third day, the three Day dead body of Jesus comes walking out of the grave, signifying that he has now conquered Satan, sin, death, and hell. Death no longer has power over us, sin no longer has power over us. Hell is broken. This is what Jesus being resurrected signifies to us. Now, why would God do this? Why would God kill an innocent man? Why would God kill his only son? It seems so brutal. It seems so heinous. But he does this so that he can be glorified. And he does this, it says in Romans, so that he can be both just and the justifier. So, um, none of us... Well, sin has to be punished. There is a punishment for sin, and that is death. We know this from the Bible. So sin cannot go unpunished. None of us, if there was a judge in Modesto who was routinely just letting um, murderers go and thieves go and drug dealers go, he was just saying, no, it doesn't really matter. Um, Just go do do whatever you want to do. None of us would respect that judge. And in fact, we would probably run him out of town. Because we don't want that guy here. That's not justice. That's that's a joke. So God cannot just say, oh, there's sin. Well, it's not that big of a deal. It it is that big of a deal because it's death, because it's destruction, because sin equals separation from God. So God, so that he could be just and the justifier, takes our sin and puts it on to Jesus and punishes him then for our sin so our sin has been dealt with so our sin can only be paid for in two ways one we can pay for it by spending eternity in hell or we can accept the fact that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin and so God then becomes the justifier and he justifies those who would believe in Jesus Christ and what this means is it is a legal declaration that we are innocent. We, we are now no longer guilty before God. We are innocent, and we are going to spend eternity in heaven with him. That's good news. I mean, that's, that's worth it all. If, if, that was, if that was all God did, how, how amazing would that be? Just to know that we're not going to spend eternity in hell. But he does more than that. He even goes on. And he says, not only am I going to justify you, but now I'm going to sanctify you. And so the third, third, no, we're on the fourth point of the gospel is restoration. So we have creation, fall, redemption, and now restoration. God sets about restoring all things back to their former glory. And so he says, I'm going to, Jesus ascends into heaven and then, because Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit descends onto earth and begins this work of restoration. And in that, then, is this work of sanctification. So God doesn't say, just, you know, I've saved you. Now, eke out your three score and ten, as terrible as that's going to be, and just get through it. But I'll come, you know, eventually you'll die and you'll go to heaven. He says, no, I'm going to give you life, and I'm going to give you life abundantly right now. That's happening right now. And so he puts us to death with Christ and then raises us up to now new life. And he sets about this work of restoration. Now what this means for us is that our identity has changed. So no longer are we, um, as the Bible would say, children of wrath but we are sons and daughters of the King. We are sons and daughters of God. Our identity has changed radically. And uh, we talk about this a lot at Redeemer. Um, but, so we, we define identity with these five words. It's purpose, value, significance, acceptance, and security. So where you find your purpose, value, significance, acceptance, and security... That's where your identity is found. So, so often we find it over here in, in the world. So the world gives us acceptance and, and purpose and significance. And so we, our identity is over in the world. And then you know, we get tired of that, so we swing over here to religion. And we start to find our identity and rules and morality and just um, looking good. And, but that gets oppressive and dark. And we can't stay there. And so we, it's kind of like on a pendulum and we swing back and forth. But now, our identity can be found perfectly in the gospel. The gospel, Jesus has given us a new identity where we no longer have to look for purpose, value, significance, acceptance from the world or religion. We find that in Jesus Christ alone. And he meets those needs and he changes our identity. And then he calls us then into this new life. So let's look at how the gospel then would change our relationships. How because of Jesus, the the three best words in the English language, because of Jesus, we are now called into new life and what this looks like. So I'm going to read from Romans 12, um, verses 3 through um, 19. So Romans 12, 3 through 19. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's really hard to do. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So now here we have a picture of gospel-centered community. This is a picture of what relationships could look like in light of the gospel. And the first thing we learn about our new identity from this passage is that we are now part of the body of Christ. So if you're a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ. You're no longer out there on your own. This is, this is not an individual sport. This is a team sport. Okay? We are all part of the body of Christ. And this is how the gospel changes this in us. Because um, before, w- without Jesus, it's all about us. It's all about me. It's all about self-actualization and loving myself more and all these things that the world would tell us. That's gone. Now we're a part of Christ's body. We are are called to be a part of the body of Christ, and we are called to be a well functioning part of the body of Christ. And so Paul uses the image of the human body, and you know, you've got your head, and hands, and arms, and toes, and back hair, and all these things that you have, and we're each a part of that. We're the body functions correctly when all the parts are functioning. If anyone's ever smashed your finger, you know life stops until that thing's healed. Or heaven forbid you break a leg or anything like that. When one part isn't functioning correctly, the whole body suffers. And so God calls us, um, calls us into this new life, makes us a part of the body. And so it's, we're not individuals anymore. We're part of his body. And we're to take part in the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification. Now, this is the Holy Spirit's work. He is sanctifying us, and by sanctifying us is the process by which we are made more like Christ. And the Holy Spirit is doing that right now in each of our lives. But we have a part in that. You have a part in that with everyone in this room. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if any of you are married, you know that this goes on daily. So your spouse plays a huge role in your sanctification. If you have children, they play a l- large role in your sanctification. And God says, I want that writ large, as it were, in the church, where you, you all play a part in one another's sanctification. So what, uh, what are some things, what could this look like? What what could community, what could relationships look like in light of the gospel? Uh, one of my favorite things we see here in Romans is that we would mourn with those who mourn and, and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. This, this is nearly impossible. So just picture this. So someone comes into um, your church or if you guys have small groups or something like that, they come in and you know that they've really been struggling with their finances. Things have not been going well, um, and they come in, and they're just, they're just so excited. I mean, they are beside themselves because um, they went from making $20,000 a year, and their boss just gave them a raise. He's going to pay them $2 million a year, and they're just, I mean, it's going to change everything. Their family, you know, they're going to be able to finally move out of that one-bedroom apartment and all eight kids will have, you know, their own bedroom and all. And they're just, they're stoked. And if I'm honest, in my flesh, I sit there and think, really, that guy? I've been working my whole life and, and, and he gets, you know, that kind of an opportunity? What? Where's, where's my blessing, God? What, how did I get left out of this? Or if someone comes into our group and they're just beside themselves, they're just... Um, just sad something terrible has happened to them someone maybe someone or they're struggling things are things are not going well and haven't been for a long time and if I'm honest in my flesh I think and we prayed about that last week are you really not over that yet We we prayed about that for three weeks straight seriously can you just move on now And in our flesh, that might be our reaction, but because of the gospel, that changes everything. Now when a brother or sister comes in and they are so excited and the Lord has blessed them, we can, we understand that this isn't about us. This is the body of Christ and we can rejoice with them, love them, encourage them, and just be excited for them or when someone comes in and they're struggling with the same thing week after week after week instead of getting annoyed and shutting them off we mourn with them we weep with them because what hurts them hurts us what brings them joy brings us joy this is the this is the type of connection that the holy spirit is building in this body right here this is this is the work of restoration that we would be so in tune with one another, that we would be able to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who are mourning. What else? It says, um, "Let says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So we are called to hate sin. This becomes... At least for me, this can be a little bit difficult, and I know that sounds bad because it is. But um, I, don't, I don't often hate sin. Sin is kind of—it's an inconvenience. It's—it's it's just it, we just don't like it, but but we kind of tolerate it because everybody's a sinner. We're all sinners, you know. That's just—that's just what's going on. The Bible says, Paul says in Romans, we're to hate, abhor evil, hate sin. Why? Because God hates sin. God if God could just tolerate sin, then Jesus didn't have to die. Then if if God could have just tolerated sin, then him killing Jesus is is like it becomes the most horrible thing ever. So it can't be tolerated. It had to have been punished, it had to be dealt with. And he says. I want you to hate sin because sin is death. Sin is destruction. Sin equals separation from God. So when a brother or sister comes in and we see that they are living in sin, we don't go to them with a judgmental spirit of, hey, you know, I'm I'm, I'm better than you and really you should stop doing that. That's not helpful. No no one's going to respond to that. But we go to them and say, Brother or sister, you're, you're living in this sin over here, but let me show you where that leads. Let me show you how that leads to death. Let me show you how that's going to destroy the relationships that you have, how that's going to destroy your life, and how eventually it's going to lead to death. And so the loving thing to do is to come alongside someone and say, Look, you need to put that away. You need to walk away from that. You know, I think um, as Francis Chan tells a story. You know, this for us to just tolerate sin would, would be like going skydiving with your friend, and you're you're both you got your you're strapped on, you got your packs on, you're about ready to jump out of the plane. You're I don't, I've never been skydiving, but let's say ten thousand feet. You're about to hop out of this plane, and you know that what your friend just put on was his backpack. Not a parachute, it's his backpack. And you watch him put it on, and he's just so excited, and he's gonna jump out of the plane. And um, so you have two choices here. One, you can, you can just say, Well, he thinks it's a backpack, or he thinks it's a parachute, so I, I guess, you know, just let him do his thing, you know. Or you can grab your friend, pull him back into the plane, open the thing up, and say, Look, this is just a backpack. The thing that you have put your hope in, the thing that that you think will save you, will not. It's not a parachute. It's just a backpack. That's what calling out one another on our sin should mean to us. We say, look, that thing that you have put your hope in, that thing that you think will make you happy, that you think will bring you joy, it can't because it's not that. But let me show you who can bring you joy. Let me show you who can bring you acceptance, security, purpose, value, Jesus Christ, the real deal. So we're called to hate sin, um, expose each other's idols, encourage one another on to obedience. You know, what this um, should lead to is us being Not not waiting to get confronted on our sin, but us being open and honest with one another about our sin and our struggles. This is hard to do. There's there's nothing easy about this. Um, For for whatever reason, we don't want to tell people, even, even though we all know we're all sinners, we don't want to tell someone specifically what we're struggling with. But because... Our identity has been changed, now we can. Because before, you know, our identity is wrapped up in all these things over here. And so to tell someone about our sin, we would identify ourselves by that sin. But now that our identity is in Christ, we can be open and honest about our struggles because that isn't us. We, first and foremost, are sons and daughters of God. The sin in our life is something we struggle with. It's not, it doesn't define us anymore. Jesus Christ, our position as his sons and his daughters, that is our definition. The sin is something we're struggling with and we want it cut out of our lives. And the Bible says one of the best ways to do that is to confess it to one another and repent to one another and walk with one another until that thing is gone. Because of the gospel, we can do this. We don't have to hide. We don't have to. You know, when sin is brought out of the darkness and into the light and it's exposed, it dies. It dies. I know, I know we've experienced this. How else might this play out? Well, um... Because of the gospel, we are called to show God's love to the world by loving each other and the lost. And so community and relationships, they're not just about us. So it doesn't just terminate on us. God didn't just save us so we could all gather together each week and and build our own little cities and our own little communes and just hang out with one another. Now, that might seem like a good idea sometimes, But that's not why God God did this. He created us, yes, one, to love one another, take part in this work of sanctification in each other's lives, but he also says, I want you to love each other, and by loving each other, that's going to display my love to those who do not yet know me. And so that we would love one another, changed by the gospel, we would love one another, and then people who don't know Jesus would see that and say, I want that. I want to be a part of that. That what, What's going on there, that's different. And so we don't just reach out to one another, but this allows us then to reach out to the lost. Now, um, I know that um, we've all been We've all been burned by relationships and things have not always um, gone the way we want them to. But what I'd like you to know is that that's not an excuse to not be in relationship. So don't use those those past hurts and those past things that people have um, done or said to you to, to pull back from a relationship and say, well, it's just it's just too hard. I can't do it. I just can't be involved at that level. I just can't be vulnerable because what if someone hurts me? And we've all been in that situation where, you know, you, you think, man, it'd be, sure be great to get this thing off my chest, but if I share it, then what if, what if um, this guy over here, he goes and tells someone else, and then they know what I'm struggling with? And then they tell someone else and someone else, and pretty soon it's just the talk of the town. But because of Jesus, that doesn't matter. Who cares? Who cares who knows what about you? It doesn't that that shouldn't matter to us anymore because again, our identity is not in our reputation. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And so we can be open and honest. And not be worried about who might find out about what, because that is not us. Someone comes to you and says, oh, I hear you're struggling with this, so you must be this. No, no. I'm a son of Jesus Christ. I'm a daughter of God. I I am a daughter or son of the creator of the universe. Yeah, I'm struggling with that thing, and I'm looking forward to the day that it's gone. And that's the end of it. And so we don't have to come up with excuses to not be um, in each other's lives. This also changes um, fundamentally, the gospel changes, how um, we use our time, our talents, and our treasures. And this is... um, again, the work of community, that we would give one another our time, that we would give to one another our talents. You know, we we looked through here and we've got this whole list of spiritual gifts. Being a part of the body, you have a gift or gifts from the Holy Spirit um, and that we would use those and that um, this would fundamentally change the way that we use our money. And so, our you know, with our time, we can now be... Um, Because we understand that our time, talent, and treasure all belongs to God, remember He created it all by Him and for Him, so since it all belongs to Him, you know, maybe, just maybe, we don't need to work 70 hours a week so we can afford all of these things, but maybe He would ask us to take a step back, do the normal 40 hour a week, and instead use those other 30 hours to engage with The people around us? Or maybe um, with our talents instead of, you know, how can I use either my God-given abilities or my God-given spiritual gifts to better my life? How could I use those to better the lives of the people around me? How could I use those to glorify God, um, to edify the body, and to show God to unbelievers? Or maybe with our money, now, there, there are two things that Americans won't talk about. One is our sin. I hate to talk about that. The second is money. I'll prove this to you, because um, if I asked any one of you for your latest credit card statement, you would walk out or hit me or something. Um, and if you asked for mine, uh, that wouldn't be good either. Um, no one talks about this. We don't. It is insulting in our culture to talk to someone about money, to to just come into a conversation and say, "Are you struggling with debt?" We just say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! That's that's none of your business. That that's a wall there." And and Satan has done such a brilliant job with this in our culture because money has has pretty much just slipped to the background. We don't even realize it anymore. We don't even realize that it controls every single facet of our lives. It has become such an idol that it almost doesn't even exist. It's invisible. But because of the gospel, this radically changes what we are to do with our money. Because it's from God. You may have worked for it and, you know, Prior to coming on staff at Redeemer, I'm a, I'm a blue-collar guy. I'm an equipment mechanic. I know what it is to work with my hands. And for someone to say, that's not, that money's not yours, <laughs> please, that's mine. God says, no, no, no. I gave you the ability to work. I gave you the hands to carry out that job. I gave you the mind to even to be able to think that way and to analyze that way. He says, it's mine, and I want you to use it for my glory. I want you to use it to edify the body, and I want you to use it to bring the lost into the body. So now we can... (laughs) This is where I can say whatever I want, and, you know, what can you do? But see, now, now we can get involved in this way in one another's lives. You know, you can... You can start to talk about this openly as a fellowship and where, you know, money, instead of being the biggest idol that nobody talks about, it's, it's out on center stage and it gets crushed. And the resources of this church begin to be used in a radically different way that really affects the good of this city. So we learn that, man, we're a member of the body of Christ that changes how we use our time, our talent, and our treasure. Okay, um, last one, and then we'll close. Um, because of the gospel, we can be fulfilled in the midst of unmet expectations, because he uses those to reveal my heart so I can repent and be made more like Christ. And so this gets back to that first point again, that relationships and community often painful, they're difficult. And a lot of times, you know, we have these expectations that it's just, man, this church or this community group or this group of people, it's going gonna, gonna to be different this time. This time, it's going to be different. And, and it turns out that it's not. It turns out that there's still sinners there. And the fact that you showed up means that there's sinners there. And it's, it's just messy. And here's the beauty of God. He says... I'm going to use those unmet expectations to sanctify you. And I'm going to use those unmet expectations to sanctify the people in that group or that church, wherever it is. Because he promises, he promises this. I'm going to work all things for your good. I don't know how he does that. It's, it's crazy to think about that. But that he would work all things for our good. That means everything. That means all things, no matter what it is. He says, I'm going to work it for your good. And so, again, when we're faced with those unmet expectations and someone lets us down, this then allows us to go to that brother and sister and say, hey, I thought it was going to be like this, and it's not. What, what's going on? Is it, is it my that my expectations are out of whack, or is it you know maybe your expectations? off kind of doing your own thing. What What's going on here? But it allows you just to come into that conversation and to talk about it with one another. And God would then use that. It'll sanctify us and it'll sanctify uh, the men and women around us. So we have been called. We have been called into community. We're created for community. We need each other. God has called us to this work. And as we've already established, um, this can get messy. It can get a little bit hairy. But God says in uh, Romans 8.32 or Paul says in Romans 8.32 God gave his own son for us what else will he not give us? He's called us to this work and he says I'm going to empower you to carry out this work. If, If you don't have it you don't need it. That's a hard place to live, but that's the truth. If we don't have it, you don't need it. And he says, ask me. Ask me for anything that you want, and I'll give you what you need. And so he's called us into this work of community. He's called us to be in relationship with one another, and he says, I've given you everything that you need right now for that. Second... um, as a believer, you can't lose. You can't lose. It's not possible for you to lose. God uses all things for our good. <laughs> he uses, this is the crazy one, He uses our sin for our good. How, how would He even do that? But He does. He uses the sin that has been committed against us for our good. He uses all things for our good you can't lose. What, what could someone do to you that would ever take you out of the Father's love? This is all of Romans 8 where it says nothing can separate you from my love. We can't lose. With God on our side, you know, Paul, Paul says this so well when he says, you know, to die is Christ. To live is gain. If they kill me, great. I'll be with Jesus in heaven. If I get to live, great. I have life and I have it abundantly. We can't lose as believers. The last is the Holy Spirit is already working in our lives. And he's working in our groups, in our church, in our city, and in our world. The Holy Spirit is doing stuff right now in each one of your lives, doing things in my life. He's doing things in this city. He is doing things in our country. He's doing things in the world. And he does not ask us at any point to go anywhere that he is not. He does not ask us to take him to some place. He says, come join me where I already am working. He's already there. He's doing stuff, and so the Holy Spirit is working all around us, and He simply asked us to come and join Him in this work, and He will sustain us, and He will empower us to carry it out.